As you make your way there, please take your Bibles, if you will. Turn with me to the very last book in the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at the book of Matthew, or Ma- Matthew, Malachi. Start at Matthew and go back a book. How about that? Uh, the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. I mentioned during the announcements, we're very much excited about the book of Genesis, which is going to carry us through 2024, that series. But today, actually, we're going to seize an opportunity to start of this new year. thought it would be a great chance to do a quick survey. It's an often neglected but significant minor prophet. I don't know about you, but minor prophets is not where I spend a lot of time on a day-in and day-out basis in your regular reading. And so we wanted to take a moment just to consider one of the prophet's messages. Malachi actually means, interestingly enough, means my messenger. That's literally what his name means in Hebrew. So we're going to see why that's the case as we go. And if you've never done a survey before, that means our, our focus here uh, is less on the kind of individual trees and really more on the forest as a whole. We're looking at Malachi from the 30,000 foot view. So that means that we're really only going to get to uh, select passages today in this book. I would encourage you to go back and reread it in its entirety. You'll see it's not very long. Uh, there's a lot here which we're not going to be able to get to, which will bless your soul. So let's dive in. And we'll start by reading the opening of this book, Malachi, Malachi chapter 1. We're going to begin at verse 1. We'll read down to verse 5. And as we read it, let's remember this is God's word speaking to us this morning. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country. And the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord. Beyond the border of Israel. May the Lord bless his word in our midst this morning. Well, for all of us who stayed up, I did not, by the way. All of us who stayed up and watched the ball drop last Sunday evening. uh, All of us have had the opportunity to move on to 2024. We're all in the new year. But, But there are some unfortunate souls who showed up at the office on Tuesday morning. And while they look like the rest of us, they look like they live and move like they're the rest of us, like the rest of their co-workers, when these poor folks sat down at their desk, they were relegated to living and working in the past. And you may know them as accountants. They did not come in on Tuesday morning to a new year. They sat down to 2023. Everybody else is on Q1. They are on Q4. They still have a job to do in the old year, right? They, they are still putting things in order from last year. That may go on for quite a while, unfortunately, for some of you. 
Only after the books have closed can accountants finally turn the page. And I've often imagined, what does an accounting department do when they finally close the book? So they get to have their own, like, celebration inside accounting department. The rest of the company is all, you know, packed all the New Year's celebration, everything else up. But they've got the little, you know, the little kazoos and the hats and everything. And they close the year. Then they get to have their own private ball drop, I guess, because 2023 is finally over for these poor folks. And if you are one of them, we see you. We appreciate you. Your labors are not in vain. But if that is you, then Malachi has felt your pain because he too was called to this critical work of keeping the books. Keeping the books. Not the financial books, as we will see, though it includes a finances are going to play a major role in that. But rather, he was called to keep the spiritual books. That was his that was his job, and these books, the spiritual books, are infinitely more important. <clears throat> it's no easy task, however, because Malachi lived and ministered approximately 500 years before Christ. So this is something of an in-between period, if you will, in salvation history. That's where he's living and ministering, kind of an in-between period. He's, he's, he's closing up the Old Testament. It is in-between as we enter into 400 years, basically, plus of silence. And so it's an in-between period in salvation history. And as you know, as you may know, one of the major events is that the southern kingdom had fallen to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians about a hundred years earlier. And they had done so because of their sin against the Lord. And when the Babylonians came, they pillaged, they raised Solomon's temple to the ground, they carried off the young, they carried off the educated, they decimated the nation's future. This is not the kind of thing that a people recovers from ever. After decades in exile, though, the Persians finally defeated Babylon and took the mantle of world superpower, and miraculously, they adopted a much more lenient policy towards their subjects, including, including allowing the Jews to return home and begin to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and the temple. So that's all taken place at this point when Malachi steps onto the scene. All the, the externals, the structures are being put back in place. And yet, despite that, the soul of the nation was still in ashes and shambles. That's what he was sent to. The soul of the nation was still in ashes and shambles. Old Testament scholar Trimper Longman III puts it this way. The time period was especially gray for Israel. The immediate post-exilic, that means coming back from Babylon, period, was a time of great optimism when they first got to come back. Access was granted to Palestine. The process of rebuilding had begun, and particularly the temple, the symbol of God's presence in the city, was rebuilt. Nonetheless, Judah remained a relatively insignificant province of the Persian Empire. God did not appear to give success to his people. Thus, discouragement set in with concomitant, that means concurrent, moral lapses. So that is what's going on when Malachi gets here. He is called to step into the midst of a spiritual mess with an important task. God says, clean things up. Get my people ready. Because I have a new day on the horizon. Before that new day will dawn, the books have to be put in order. There's several different structures that have been applied to Malachi. The one with the most merit 
highlight six specific disputations that God takes up with his people. But for the sake of simplicity, we don't have time for all six today. We're going to pare it down. Consider the book under three headings. Those headings are going to form the three points of today's message. You'll see them behind me. The indictment of Israel's spiritual leaders, Judah's spiritual leaders. That's chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 9. The indictment of the whole nation, chapter 2, 10 to chapter 3, 15. And the book of remembrance from chapter 3, 16 through 4, 6. The indictment of spiritual leaders, the whole nation. And then finally the third point, book of remembrance that is taken at the end. None of these things, we talk about the indictments, yet none of the specific rebukes or promises that God is going to to talk about here in Malachi are going to make any sense, though, apart from God's electing love, which is how he began the book, right? That's, that's, That's the context. There's a reason he introduces it where he introduces it. Because the people, as we see here, are looking at their present circumstances, which, as we know, aren't going anything like they had hoped they would go to see how God had cared for him. And the immediate conclusion they have drawn from looking at their present circumstances is that God must have turned his back on them, that that he has now changed in some form or fashion. He has failed to keep his covenant with them, his word to them. Have you ever been there? You ever been there? Maybe you're there right now. Maybe you find yourself You look around at the world, maybe you look around at your own life, and you find yourself in a kind of a bitter argument with God. He seems to have failed. He seems to have not come through in the way that you were expecting, that your life is not going the way that you were hoping it would to begin 2024. Maybe you're, you're engaged with similar questions and doubts that these folks are engaged with. But present circumstances, as we will see, are the worst thing that we can use to evaluate God's love for his people. Because those things are constantly changing and shifting, aren't they? This is, we were one week into 2024. And I guarantee you things have already changed. Your circumstances have already changed from when we started the year. We're one week in and stuff's already been changing. You may have gotten news that you weren't expecting. You, you, things may not have gone the way you were hoping. Or maybe they did. Maybe they were good. But circumstances are constantly shifting and changing. That's why they are, they are a poor measuring tool to evaluate God's love for us. Because his love for us is nothing of the sort. The question has never been, does God continuing to love his people? It's never been that. Is God continuing to love his people? We look around, we can think that question. But in reality, the question has never been, has God loved his people? question for them and for us is always been, what is our love for him? What is our desire for him? Which is the whole aim of Malachi's reformation, beginning as it should with the nation's spiritual leaders. Look there at chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father... Where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? 
When you offer those who are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. Signed, the Lord of hosts. How about that? Which is why God is challenging here their phony obedience to him. When he basically says, he tells them, he tells them, you would not dare show up for work like that. You would not dare treat your boss the way you're treating me. You would not dare show up with such an irreverent attitude towards some official judge in your land, your governor, your ruler. You wouldn't show such insolence towards him. And if you fear a man like that, spiritual leaders, then why in the world do you think it's okay to pile one sin on top of another by giving me, the God of the universe, the Lord of hosts, your leftovers? Why? You wouldn't bring your leftovers to anybody else. Why are you bringing them to me? You wouldn't expect to be accepted by bringing your leftovers to anybody else. Why are you bringing them to me and expecting to be accepted? And before we're too quick to throw them under the bus and exonerate ourselves, I have to stop and ask, is that the approach that we take towards the Lord? Are we taking a, such a light approach to Him that we fear man more than we fear Him? Are we content with surface religion comprised of lip service and leftovers? Do we assume forgiveness is a cheap and flimsy thing that's easily handed out? Freely, but not easily. So we can't take our cues from the culture around us. They're going to assume, what's the big deal? And sadly, sadly, we can't even rely on what passes for much of Christianity in America today to get our standard in this way. Which is why the Lord's sober warning to these spiritual leaders still holds true for those who are in positions of spiritual leadership this morning. Let's skip down to chapter 2. This is the Lord continuing to indict the spiritual leaders. Verses 1 to 8. He says, and now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. it tells you what the Lord thinks of their offerings. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many people to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Matthew Henry once wrote, Nothing profanes the name of God more than the misconduct of those whose business it is to do honor to it. Isn't that the truth? It's the case then. Fortunately, it's apparently a perpetual problem. We have seen it in our own day, have we not? Remember 
way back when, there was a traveling priest. He was in Judges. He was traveling along. He was willing to just be hired out for whoever paid him the most. You give me a signing bonus, I'll come work for you. One guy hired him to his house. He said, come be my priest. and God will bless me. I'll give you 10 shekels and a shirt. He said, sure, that sounds great. I'm going to go with you. That's why he was, he was supposedly a spiritual leader, but that's how little he thought of God. 2 Corinthians 2, Paul bluntly calls out such men that existed in his day. He says, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. He said, we are men of integrity in how we approach the ministry. Sadly, the problem hasn't seemed to have gotten any better. How many peddlers of God's word do we see today? How many leave out or water down the parts of Holy Scripture that are bad for business? It's one of the reasons why our habit here is to... It's the worst Sunday to talk about this. We're not reading through the whole book, right? (laughs) One of the reasons why our habit as a church is to preach through books of the Bible because it does hold me accountable to preach the full counsel of God's word. I don't get to make up what I want to say. And Lord, deliver us from teachers and preachers who tickle ears and damn souls. The glory may have departed from God's house in Judah in 500 B.C., but may it not also depart from his house in America in 2024. You want to pray for revival in our day? Then pray for the Holy Spirit anointing to fall on pulpits across this nation, including this one, and see if revival does not come in our day. We are not peddlers of God's God's word. We cannot be. There is too much at stake. Yet even as revival must begin with the messengers, it must also include a, a turning, a receiving of the message itself from God's people who God addresses next. Chapter 2, verses 11, and then we'll skip over to verses 13 and 14 as well. God's going to cite two concrete examples of how people have turned their hearts away from God and strayed from his ways. Let's begin with verse 11 of chapter 2. God says, Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So that's the first indictment against the people. The second, let's look at verses 13 and 14. The second thing you do is you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife, by covenant. That's the second indictment the Lord brings against his people. Ways in which they are dishonoring his name. First, the Jews are marrying foreign women. Now we have to put this in this proper context. It's not God saying that people from different nations, different cultures shouldn't marry each other. Rather, we have to understand that under the old covenant, it was vital for the Jews to maintain their ethnic identity. Because in so doing, they were maintaining a distinction between God's chosen people, ethnic Israel, and the surrounding pagan nations. And they maintained that distinction not as a way to exclude exclude the other nations, but as a way to show them that there really is a God in Israel, there really is a difference, and to help them to come and believe in that Holy One of Israel. That was why they were to maintain that distinction. 
It was a, it was a distinction to draw the nations in. Today, under the new covenant, that distinction takes a different form. We, we were presented with the New Testament. That's the form it takes nowadays, right? This is God's call to his people nowadays. We are to be a distinct people. We are to be a holy, and what does the New Testament call us to be? We're to be a holy people, set apart. We're supposed to be kind of weird. We're supposed to stick out. You ever been to a place and you feel like, man, I feel weird. Good. Good. You should. You're supposed to stick out like a bit of a sore thumb. Why don't we find our identity in the same things that everybody else does? Why, why do we dress modestly and not like the cover of whatever Vogue tells us to dress like? Why don't we watch all of the same shows and movies? Is it because we want to be Amish? Do we like to be morally superior? No, it's because we are a new people. We're citizens of a new society. We belong to a heavenly Jerusalem. And we long for that city to be set on a hill, for it to be a light to those around, so that people nowadays can see there truly is a difference. There really is a difference in the church of Jesus Christ, and that is, he is that difference. That is the way in which we live out this new calling. So if there's known sin in your life today, today's the day to cut it out. For the sake of your lost neighbors, for the sake of your lost family members, for the sake of there being a distinction once again between us and the world that extends far beyond where we sit on a Sunday morning. Let's heed this call. Let's also heed the second indictment. This is a serious one today. Sinners on the people's broken marriages. He says, husbands, you have been faithless to the wife of your youth, your companion, by covenant. And we've seen this word over and over again, haven't we? God takes covenant seriously. He's repeatedly emphasizing, first, their covenant with him, and here he's stressing the covenant relationship of marriage. See, ever since the fall, broken relationship with God has always led to the breakdown of relationships with others. And while we know every individual circumstance is unique, we know that. We know that's true. There are always circumstances that are, that are difficult and we can't even imagine. It's not so much individual circumstances here as the, the holistic view of marriage as a whole. That, that's what he's getting at, the holistic view of marriage. Instead of a divinely created bond, instead of God's people believing that, that marriage was a divinely created bond which was meant for the sake of godly homes and which requires a painful dismemberment to separate what the people had come to believe is they accepted the value and the standards of the nations around them. They come to believe that marriage and treat marriage flippantly. Like it's an easily broken human contract. It can be nullified for any reason at any point. Not meeting my needs, not convenient, not working anymore. I'm out. Statistics are accurate today and I believe they are. And we too, as Christians, have adopted a similar trivializing and selfish approach to marriage in our own day as well. Because divorce rates in the church are no different than they are outside of it. And that should tell us that something is way wrong. Such a dismissive approach to marriage by his people grieved the Lord so much back then. And why do we think it would grieve him any less today? We must uphold God's view of marriage. 
this indictment that he is bringing against his people. It's going to be held in low view out there. It cannot be held in low view in here. And yet there's one final indictment that God, conversation he wants to have with his people, and it's about money. He's hitting on all the red button issues, isn't he? I got some things to say. Let's, let's clear it up. Let's just get it all out. That's what, that's what Malachi is about. Before this new thing is happening, let's just get it all out in the open. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. God says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have kept them, have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, you say how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the fields shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. I like how he signs off that every time, in case you're wondering who you're talking to, in case you're wondering who's making these promises. Lord of hosts. And most scholars agree that times were tough financially around Jerusalem. Apparently, after this whole exile and coming back, finding employment wasn't going super well. Inflation was up. Taxes were high. Does any of that sound familiar? Perhaps a privileged few had excess resources, but most there were living paycheck to paycheck. As a result, the first place they were looking to cut was in what they brought to God, their tithes. Robbing him, as he puts it. And not just a few of them, but apparently the whole nation of you, as verse 9 says. Now, again, we know this. God didn't need their money. He, didn't need, he told them that multiple times. I don't need your money. But, but, we saw here, he intentionally set up a system in which his name and their giving were bound up together. God didn't need their money. But he intentionally set up a system in which his name and their giving were bound up together. So the question we have to ask is, why would God do such a thing? Why would he do such a thing? Because it is true that we are no longer under the old covenant. We're no longer under the same rules and regulations as the Jews of this era were. So we must ask, why did God set it up this way to understand the principle? Well, God did so to pry our hearts. He knows where our hearts go. He knows where we're going to go immediately, where, where our trust and our, our hope and our security is immediately going to go. He did this to pry it away from loving and trusting money, which is where it naturally is going to go every time, right? And he did it in such a way that we would pry it back towards him, that he would receive the glory and, and the trust and the honor of us trusting him to provide for us. That is why God set it up this way. That's why he flat out challenges his people in verse 10. Just test me. 
Just try me. Just see if I am not a God who keeps his promises and takes care of his people. Just try it and see what happens. My name is on the line if you do what I tell you to do and I don't follow through. He set it up this way so that we learn that he is a God who follows through. Money can't and won't do that. It'll, it'll keep you for a while, and then in the moment where you need it most, it will fail you. It will not give you the security and the hope and the peace that you need when you need it most. How many poor souls have we heard about who lose their fortune overnight, stock market crash, whatever it may be? How is money, how does money, how well does money save them in that moment? It's on the extreme end, but could it be that those dollars, which are a blessing, they're a blessing. They're not inherently evil. They're a blessing when used as a means to an end. They morph into a curse when worshipped as an end in and of themselves, such as the double-edged sword. They're a blessing when used as a means to an end. They morph into a curse when worshipped as an end in and of themselves. God reveals and redirects our affections and the trust of our hearts. That's why God set it up this way. That's why he may be calling you to begin giving this new year. Especially, especially when you feel like you can't afford to give. Because God's name and your giving are bound together. So we're not giving out of legalistic duty. We're giving out of faith. Does this sound like legalism? Test me. That sounds like, come in here and give me something so I'll be happy with you. Or does that sound like a gracious and generous God who longs to care for his people and show them how much he loves them? Test me. It's an invitation. Try me. See if I am not better and more worthy of your trust than you think. His name and your giving are still bound up together. Old covenant or new. In all these ways, plus countless others, the people had accused God of being unfaithful to them. They had assumed serving him is in vain. It doesn't matter. It doesn't doesn't change anything. Look at the world. Look at our lives. Where is he? They had assumed not honoring him. I can do whatever I want to do because it doesn't matter anyway. He's never showed up when I needed him to. And even as they looked around and saw the wicked prosper and the righteous suffering, even when it felt like God's saving power and his judgment of sin were things that were far in the past and that he was a much smaller God than the God of of yesteryear. Malachi was sent to say, this is anything but business as usual. It may look like it on the surface, but God is always faithful to his people and a new day is already on the way. This is not business as usual. Chapter 3, verse 1, makes note of what is on the horizon already. We're backing up a little bit, but I think it's important to grab this. Behold, I send my messenger. There's the messenger that God is actually... He's going to be there for God's interests, not his own. Behold, I send my messenger... 
We've seen him in John the Baptist every night. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And what we see here is that the accounting has begun. Because the Lord is about to suddenly inaugurate a new era when he's an era when he shows up and when playing religion isn't going to cut it anymore. The judge is holy, mighty, and impartial. He comes to his temple. He's going to close the books. He's going to reconcile accounts once and for all. Malachi 4.1 foresees such a day. For behold, this is the second time he's going to talk about this. The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, said the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. It's a terrifying picture. When he arrives, the sinful, the disinterested, those that said it didn't matter anyway, Consumed. Set by a fire this week. Coals were already kind of was at that kind of glowing red stage. Somebody had the bright idea to throw kindling on it at that point. If you know anything about heat and coals, you know that those things are, it doesn't look like the fire's burning, but it's hotter than ever. So somebody grabbed one of those little wooden pallets, you know, those little pine wooden pallets that just goes up. And they grabbed two of them and they just throw them on the fire. And suddenly, it was like we dumped gasoline on this fire. just, And we all had to back up. I was like, I'm, I'm moving. I was sitting by the fire. I was like, if you're going to put those on there, I'm just going to scooch back. Because it felt like if you were close to the fire at that point, when those coals hit that kindling, it just exploded. And it felt like your face, it's 25 degrees out there, whatever it was, it felt like your face was about to be just singed off. Little, you felt the little, those little cups. They get a little melty. You know, you put it in the microwave, those little plastic cups, they get a little melty. That's what it felt like, just a little melty. Like, that's heat. That's, that's consuming heat. And I thought, man, if God's fury is white hot already, imagine how much kindling I've added to it. Imagine how, what kind of arrogant attitude I've had this week kind of trivializing approach to the things I've taken, the trivializing approach I've taken to things that matter deeply to him. But those harsh accusations against his character that maybe I haven't said out loud, but I've thought it. If you were really this way, it wouldn't be like this. Felt it in your heart, thought it in your mind, maybe said it with your mouth. Imagine the kindling added to that fire. Stoking the flames, fanning the heat. That's why he says the day when it comes, it's going to be burning like an oven. He's a merciful God, but he is a just God. He's a holy God. His wrath is hot. And rightfully so, Malachi says. Look at our lives. We should think of that day often because it's coming. It's coming. It may come this year. You may not get to March. We should shudder. The books will close. 
Malachi was written to get us ready for that day. And apparently, it worked in his own day. Chapter 3, verse 16. There were some there in Israel that heard his message. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him to those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Book of Remembrance referenced here is a temporary measure. It was put into place, earthly recording. Let's just put our names on the line, right? It's one thing to say, well, Malachi, I agree with you. They didn't get away with that, did they? They said, let's put our name on the line. They spoke to one another and they said, let's, let's write our name here. Here's my, I'm going to put my name in that book before the Lord, before you, brothers and sisters, and before the Lord. I'm going to put my name in this book. I want to be numbered among those who responded to Malachi's message. The remnant community who received it, took it to heart, who were walking by faith. Isn't that amazing? The Old Testament closes with a group of people, because it's a mess, right? The Old Testament closes with a mess between God's people and him. That's what we're seeing right here, right? What started off with such promise, this is a messy book, is it not? And that's just, just reality. That's, that's just messy life. But... We see that there's a book that's been kept of those who are walking with him and in right relationship at the end of it all. The Old Testament closes with a remnant still looking. And isn't that getting us ready? Because there is a book in the New, is it not? The New Testament closes with a book. Revelation calls it the Lamb's book. It's a heavenly record. And in it are all those who have been forgiven, washed clean, and reconciled by the precious blood of a perfect, spotless Lamb, the one we heard about during communion this morning. Why was God so adamant about it being a perfect sacrifice because he knew what he was going to send to make sure that our name was in that book. He was holding them to the standard for their own sake so they could see his love for them. Visitor, young person, professing Christian, here's the question to ask yourself as you begin this new year. Is your name in the Lamb's book? It was brought out. It was open right here. Would you find, you scroll, get to your last name. Would you find your name right there? Right standing with God, righteous. Only those whose names are written in that book are going to be welcomed in on the last day. You say, well, how can I know? 
my name is found there. Malachi is a pretty good place to start. He says, remember, remember all that I've called you to, that I've commanded my servant Moses. Put your hope and your trust. Consider God's word. Tremble at it. Receive it as God's word. And then he closes by saying this. Look forward. Because I'm sending another day that is coming. The awesome day of the Lord. Humble yourself before a holy God, turning from sin, running, running your own life and placing your eternal hope in the day that came, the atoning work, atoning work of Jesus Christ. Those who place their trust in him, the perfect lamb, will never have their names blotted out of this book. You want to talk more about that? I'm always glad to do so. Nothing more important or urgent in your life right now than being right with God and walking with Him. You're one step closer to seeing Him face to face. Are you ready? For those who are already in Christ, we end this book right where it began. You see? Because we now know the Lord of hosts, do we not? One who signed His name on all that stuff over and over again. And what's his message for us this morning? What's the message we have heard already today? The Lord Jesus, the Lord of hosts, speaking directly to our hearts. He says, I, church, Christ Church on Lee Glan Road, I have loved you. I have loved you. We no longer have to wonder, we no, longer have to, we no longer have to say, well, how have you loved us, Lord? Not because we look around at our circumstances. Not because we look at what's going on in the world. It's because we look at that cross. And we know for sure that when he says, I have loved you, he meant every word. What a message. What a hope. This is why we fear his name, not because we're terrified of him any longer, but because we tremble at what he's done for us and how much he loves us. It was on display at a hill outside of Jerusalem. And so we too don't just leave it theoretical. We too put our name on that list and say, Number me there. I want to be called one of those people, one of God's people, those who revere and fear his name. I want to be in that number. I want to be in that book. I want to shake off the indifference. I want to get rid of the apathy. I want to serve that God because it is not in vain. We rejoice in the salvation that Christ has won for us. And we know the book is soon to be opened. The new day is soon to dawn. And this is God's promise to us. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down 
the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, signed, the Lord of hosts. Such is the message of Malachi. Such is the unchanging God that we serve. And such is the joy, the eternal joy that awaits. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I can't help but read this book, the last book of the Old Testament. And as I, my eyes hit the page, I realized that one side there's Malachi, the other side there's a little white sheet and it says the New Testament is right on the other side. It's immediately on the other side, just turning the page over and we begin the New Testament, the new era of Christ's arrival. It's that close. And Lord, I, I can't help but think that's, that's something of a picture for us today, that Lord, we are that close to you turning the page and a new heavens and a new earth appear. And so, Lord, I do pray that this book, that Malachi would serve to reorient our focus heavenward to you, Lord, a God-centered view of the world, your weight, your glory, your goodness, your mercy, your steadfast love, your justice. And I pray, Lord, that we would be those people who are getting ready for your return who are looking, our souls are waiting for you. And even in the midst, I pray for those specifically. Lord, where they are right now, their circumstances aren't matching what they were hoping or what your promises say. Lord, I pray in a special, special way, Lord, that you would speak to their hearts right this very moment and personally speak to them and say, I have loved you.